Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Webby Podcast, where we share the stories of the internet in more than five-word speeches. Is Drake... Drake in the house? Hey. Eventually, everything connects. Charles Eames. Access to sources, not power. We're taking this to Mars. Here's your host, Webby's executive director, David Michelle Davies. In 2003, journalist and author Stephen Dubner reluctantly traveled to the University of Chicago to shadow the economist Stephen Levitt for a piece for the New York Times Magazine. The resulting article titled, The Probability That a Real Estate Agent Is Cheating You and Other Riddles of Modern Life, was published in August that year. Though in different cities and in different fields, the two struck up a quick and unexpected partnership. Just 18 months later, Dubner and Levitt co-wrote and published the book, Freakonomics, a rogue economist explores the hidden side of everything. The book sold millions of copies across 40 languages and spun off a bunch of new projects for Steve and Stephen. Like, a ton. A documentary film, a radio show, a blog, more books, and as you probably know if you're listening to this show, a podcast. Our guest today is Stephen Dubner, the host of the uber-popular and Webby-winning podcast, Freakonomics Radio. We talk about his Webby-winning episode, Is the Internet Being Ruined?, what it was like to suddenly become a New York Times bestselling author, and his partnership with award-winning economist Stephen Levitt. Enjoy my conversation with Freakonomics' Stephen Dubner. Yeah, the, the po- Freakonomics Radio was never meant to be, you know, a thing at all. It was really, um, it was a side project that I started after we finished our second book, um, and I was just kind of board really and also even though you know even though Levitt and I work together and we have a partnership he's in Chicago I'm in New York so the and and also because I'm primarily the writer and he's primarily the academic you know I'd spent I guess two years essentially in a room alone just finishing up that second book Super right. Freakonomics and so I was just I thought it'd be fun to have a, a slightly more collaborative side project and um and you know I felt then it was kind of late to get into podcasting somehow, and that was 2010. Plainly, I was um, very, very wrong. (laughs) You're like the early. You're like in the earliest days, really. Is what that looks like. I mean, not really. There were a lot, but well, when I say a lot, many of them, and the ones that I kind of knew of, were the ones that were basically public radio shows that were put out in podcast form. But like, I think one of our very first episodes, we actually went to Ira, Ira Glass, and said, uh, you know, we're starting starting a podcast any advice and he's like why would you want to start a podcast that is nuts and uh so it does really seem like uh i know time doesn't technically move um faster but a as you get a little older and b as certain trends accelerate or decelerate it feels like it but it really does feel like 
you know, 2010 in terms of podcast days was horse and buggy era. And oh, yeah. now we're in like speed car era. For sure. And, uh, it's remarkable how much it's changed. So Freakonomics won the Webby for best individual podcast episode for your work, Is the Internet Being Ruined? Uh, mm-hmm. Which you might imagine is something we're pretty interested in at the Webby Awards. I was wondering if uh, it being an episode about the internet and potentially it being ruined played a part in its... Um in its favorability rating. You could, I mean, you could definitely say that the judges who are looking at it are particularly interested in the episode. Yeah. So, yeah and, certainly... But I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, look, it's, it's a question worth asking. And so this episode, I have to just say, um, while that question sounds, you know, a little bit maybe, maybe a little bit provocative or interesting or worth asking to people, I should say we totally stole the question. And we acknowledge that in the episode. We stole it... Um, from a journal that I love to read called Daedalus, and it's, I guess, of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So, you know, every month they put out this astonishing journal that asks these questions of the day that are about, you know, anything from, gosh, you know, uh, warfare and the the present, you know, the state of the nation state to uh, things like this about, you know, is the Internet being ruined? And... um and so sometimes some episodes that we do are really piggybacking on other people's ideas and re- uh, most of them, I would say, you know, we're not, it's not like we have so many great ideas or do so much great research. In fact, quite the opposite. Mostly it's about rounding up people. So this was an example of that kind of tapping into a community of people who had already done a lot of really, really, really good thinking um, and writing about this topic. And so I just want to start by claiming less credit than one might assume. Of course. And when you first saw that headline or read that article, did you have a take on it? Was it sort of like, oh my gosh, no, it's not being ruined? Or or did you my really empathize take, with it? My take was, this is exactly the right question to be asked right now. Um, and it's the kind of question that I couldn't answer at all, but the kind of people who were writing in that episode of Daedalus and then who we included, um, you know, Yochai Benkler and um, Zinep Tufchecki. I hope I'm saying their names wrong. It's been a while. Um, You know, the thing that I love about academia, and this is why probably, I don't know, if I had to guess over the past several years of all the Freakonomics Radio episodes we've done, probably something between 50 and 70% of our guests, our our main guests, are, you know, academic PhDs. And and the reason I keep coming back, and, you know, obviously we're, we're kind of built from within the channel of economics, but then it's just a very, very short trip to psychology and sociology and then a little bit further maybe to anthropology and so on, but then to computer science and medicine, da-da-da. It's not that far. And what I love is that, you know, you get these people who spend – you know, hours and hours and months and months and years and years and years and years thinking about and trying to come up with answers to questions that are, to me, as someone trained in journalism, the kind of questions that we should be asking every day. And yet, because the world is so either, you know, fill in the adjective, baffling, uh, exciting, exhilarating, frustrating, whatever, we so much of our regular media attention goes to the kind of idiocy of the day, which, I mean, if you think about it, just look at the things that you were, you know, reading about and writing about, you know, on a daily basis a year ago. Just ask yourself, like, did I really need to spend that much time worrying about, 
ex-crime or ex-scandal or ex-indignation. You know, and so I, I like to try to um, you know, gravitate toward the things that are more, not necessarily just timeless, but more universal and, and kind of important, although I like fun too. So when you find this community of people who have been thinking about something as essential as this, the internet, and how it began and what it began as and how it's changed and who that's benefited and who's that, who that's hurt, um, I love that. It's just, you know, it's like really like if I were a miner and you're down below and you're just hitting the wall and hitting the wall and hitting the wall, finding nothing, then you really hit that mother load. Someone who's got like not only a great idea, but they've expressed it incredibly well and thought it through from many angles. That's what it felt like for me to come across that journal. And so from there on out, um, we interviewed these people. And I should say also, just so that I claim personally very little credit for this episode, Christopher Wirth, one of our producers, our senior producer at Freakonomics Radio, he did, I think, most of the interviews, if not all, on on this. And then and this was a case where every episode is different. Sometimes I do a lot or all of the interviews. Sometimes the producers do a lot. Um, and this was one where Christopher really um, just took this idea and really developed it. So it was very, very, very much a group effort. This uh, so this sort of metaphor of like being down in the caverns mining is interesting. Do you have a? You you talked about you really do a lot of stuff that's around academia and information that maybe a lot of people haven't come across yet or don't know about yet. Do you have a sort of overall goal in a type of episode like this? Are you just trying to surface what these people are talking about so and put it in a in a context and in a sort of environment where people more people can find out about it, or are you trying to move it move the sort of story along or make it relatable? How do you how do you think about that? So I do feel like I have a role, but it sounds very pompous, so I rarely say it. So, But since you asked, I'm going to say it. And it, the role that I try to perform, essentially, is a, uh, a kind of a hybrid. Like, let's say half of it is... Um, I never used to think of myself as this because I, I used to think of myself as a very poor version of it, but... I would say kind of a, of a teacher or education, which is literally just it's plain old expository, explanatory, um, whether you want to call it journalism or whatnot, which is here is a phenomenon or here's a set of facts or here's a story, whatever. And I want to tell you about it so that you know about it. Simple as that. And maybe help you think about how to think about it, not tell you how to think about it, but think about how to think about it. So I would say it's a hybrid between educational and then the other half, I kind of pretend that I uh, am the head of a political party. Um, and the political party that I run is called the Anti-Stupidity Political Party, which obviously would never get any votes for anything because, you know, stupidity is very, very helpful in actually getting votes. A lot of the ideas and messages and platforms and even the way we execute um, political messaging and campaigns is built on people being kind of, you know, stupid, kind of misinformed and, you know, trying to show people a shiny thing to get them excited about something while ignoring what's actually beneath the surface. And so uh, maybe this is more closely tied to the teaching part than um, it, it seems. But in my head, there's the explanatory. Then there's like the kind of constant um, question asking and challenging and uh, curiosity that I think we all have as we're kids and then as we get educated and as we get out among peers and we want to, you know, protect or burnish our reputations as substantial people and intelligent people, 
we kind of become susceptible to dogma, to accepting, you know, these, this is the right way to think about this set of issues, and this is the right way to think about this set of issues. And then we typically tend to align ourselves with one political or ideological movement or another. And I just think all of that is ridiculous. I think that um, it's a lot more fun and, and fruitful for all of us to look at every single issue or um, scenario um, almost as if you're a child and um, ask the kind of questions you might ask, um, you know, when you don't think so much about protecting or burnishing rep- your reputation. Things like, hey, this Internet thing that we use all the time, you know, it's great. I use it more and more every day. I interact more and more with people all the time. But is it possible that it is being ruined? And so those are the kind of questions that I um, would contribute to the uh, that I would would put in the category of the anti-stupidity part of my job. One of the premises of this episode, well, there's a couple, but one of them is that the Internet started off as something relatively independent and new and sort of outside of power constructs and social constructs, and that as time has gone on, it's becoming and starting to look a lot more like a traditional, you know, power hierarchy, mm-hmm. if you will. What yep. what what is the what was the sort of stupidity or the dogma wrapped up in that that you were that was interesting to you? Is there stuff there oh, that was counterintuitive yeah. that you were really? I think it's in? actually maybe not counterintuitive, but that should be intuitive for anybody who's who you know who likes a little bit of history and a little bit of economics, which is just that you know um, leverage seems to run kind of downhill and people collect it. I mean that's that's kind of the story of humankind. So I do think, um, I wouldn't necessarily call this stupid, but maybe a little bit naive for us to expect that somehow there's going to be a technology, um, whether it's the internet or something else, that changes, that so fundamentally alters human nature so that people still don't try really hard to win. And by winning, you often try to kind of accumulate and aggregate leverage and power. So, uh, yeah, again, I... That's why I don't say this out loud. I, w- I wouldn't call it stupid because that sounds like way too much of a pejorative. But I do think it, it naive is um, right, is the right. right expression for that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, in the one of the interesting things you talk about, you, and uh, your producer interviews a lot of people in the episode about sort of like those early days of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, did you kind of come away with a with an opinion on that? If it's if it was something think, really new or just like a supercharged yeah, I mean, version of what existed before. I mean, my opinion, my opinion for what that's worth, which I would say is not very much, is that I think one way that the digital revolution, if we want to just call it that, including the Internet, is a little bit misunderstood, is that um, it probably is a mistake to think of it as being full of new things. Um, And the reason it's a mistake, you know, if it's a mistake, how does it matter? Um, and one could one could argue that it matters primarily in if you think that this is a fundamentally different um, creation, then you might have fundamentally different expectations for what that creation will lead us to. And what I mean by that is uh, we think a lot these days about productivity, uh, employment, and the future. Uh, the future of both of those and how technology and automation and robotization play into that. And so there is an argument that we've weathered many technological revolutions before and people still had plenty to do. And there's an argument that this one is different. And that's kind of always the argument that this one is different. So one way of looking at the digital revolution is that, well, 
as different as it would appear to be, the fact is that most of what the digital revolution has done is taken things we were already doing and just made it faster and or cheaper and or more mobile and or more flexible somehow. So we were already communicating with phones and all kinds of other things. Now we can communicate in different ways. We're already buying things. We're already doing commerce. We're, we're already having community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the internet makes all of these things well, it makes all these things – it does a lot of things to all of those things. It makes it larger. Uh, it makes it faster. It makes it more bountiful. makes it more threatening. So, you know, Kevin Kelly, one of my favorite technologists, I guess you'd call him, he has a saying. I don't know if he made it up or took it from someone. He likes to say there's never been an invention or a technology in history that hasn't been weaponized. And I think once you understand that, I mean, you think back to, you know, steel, a knife, fire, every single thing that's brought us further down the road. Also, there's some small fraction of people that will, you know, use it to kill you. And so I think that is kind of part of the naivete. Also, why would you expect that something like a system like the Internet would somehow, you know, be different? Because humans are changing a lot more slowly than our prima, you know, than our than our technology is. Um, I don't think I answered your question at all. I just blathered. But um, I, I think the change overall of the Internet is gigantic, but gigantic more in magnitude than category, if that makes sense. It does. Um, and I was thinking when I was listening to the episode, and you guys bring up this question in the episode, I was sort of thinking to myself what I thought. And I remember five or ten years ago, had you asked me that question, I would have said, oh, it's completely different. Power structures have changed. Anybody can publish all these things. Yeah. But now in 2017, when you look at it and you ask that question, it seems less different. It seems more sort of like what you're describing, which is this this sort of like big shift, big improvement yeah. or big change, but not necessarily different. I think you're right. Although, you know, even if you accept, you know, a kind of relative sameness, like, you know, it was a rectangle and it's still a rectangle. The fact is, is that the people who are inside it and the density of that and the people who comprise the frame, those, those that really is different. And that's one thing that I think is really disconcerting for a lot of people is your place in the firmament is likely to be changed on you a lot it's more likely and it will happen faster now than it used to be. And I think that's, and that's really hard. Look, I mean, you mentioned like the the technology or the barrier to entry. When I started in journalism, uh, my kind of second job, the job I treasured was arriving at the New York Times. And I was an editor mostly, but I, I mostly wanted to write. So I, uh, I wrote as much as I could. I was at, editing at the Sunday Magazine, and I kind of had a deal where I, I, I was given the time to write at least one big piece a year. And that was, you know, a writer is all I'd ever really wanted to be. And um, at that time, in order to get published at the New York Times, um, you know, look at the layers that I had to go through. Not go through. Look at all the, thi all the things above me that had to line up for that article that I would write to be published. I had to have a series of editors who would kind of approve of what I was doing and then work with it as I went and so on. And then there's the institution itself. And sometimes it has something to say about what's published and what's not. And then there was this massive infrastructure of publishing. The New York Times, I mean, a lot of people don't remember. This wasn't that long ago. But a lot of people don't remember. The New York Times used to own Printing press as well. Okay, they still do. Printing, you know, a, a huge printing facilities. And they used to actually own the trucks to deliver the newspaper. That was a huge part of their cost and their leverage. And then 
that began to change. So look, now I'm still a writer. I just write a podcast. I mean, it's the same process every week. Interview a bunch of people. We take many hours of tape, cut it down into many, many, many fewer hours, arrange it into a script, write the narrative in the script, write it and publish it. But publishing now is literally just uploading the feed. And instantly, at a cost of close to zero, anyone in the world with uh, an enabled device, which is to say almost anyone in the world now, instantly can get it also for free. So the amount of friction that's been removed from that transaction is almost infinite. And that, I think, is the kind of change that if you're adapting to it and, you know, um, in sync with that change, as I happen to be, you're like, man, this is awesome. But if I were uh, a truck driver working for the New York Times, I'm like, not not such a good change. And that is a challenge that I think we all have now is to assess the rate and magnitude of change that's going on now and figure how can we best, you know, benefiting ourselves comes natural. You know, we all we all know how to look out for ourselves and our loved ones. And that's great. And that's important. And I don't, um, der- you know, I, I don't put that down at all. But I think most of us want to be the kind of people who, even when we've got ours, we try to figure out how uh, everybody can get a chance at theirs, too. And that, I think, is a huge challenge that I think the Internet is both, um, you know, uh, a scary component of for some people because it's disintermediating a lot and can potentially be a huge um, boon for you know, it's uni- one of the interviewees in the episode sort of starts, touches on this issue a bit tangentially. I th- her name was Zainef Tufeki, I think, if uh-huh. I said her name right. I think Tufeki, uh, but Tufchecki. Um, it's and been a while, so. Tufeki? Yeah. Sorry, Zainef. No. <laughs> um, and she sort of like, she has this one big, comp- I mean, a lot of points, but one sort of complaint, which is that she thinks it's kind of a waste of time that we have all these best technologists our best technologists are spending all their time trying to figure out how to keep more people on Facebook right. and show them more yeah. advertising, right? Instead of, I guess, theoretically doing something that would have a greater good. How does uh, you guys, Freakonomics generally tries to bring this economic or economist lens to these type of questions. How how do you look at that? something like that? Well, I mean, in that case, I mean, that the case that you just mentioned is something that interests me a lot specifically because, yeah, Facebook, which literally didn't exist, whatever, 10, 12 years ago, now is one of the most valuable companies on the planet. And what does it do? So, you you know, we could debate this for many, many, many months. And uh, depending on your feelings that day, you might think Facebook does a service that, you know, is incomparably better than anything that's ever existed or, or quite the opposite. So, but if you look at, you know, the reality of it as a company and what kind of leverage or opportunity that creates or maybe even, maybe even destroys, you know, look, Mark Zuckerberg, I have no idea how aggressively he's going to follow through on this, but he wrote this sort of manifesto uh, a few months ago in which he described wanting to use Facebook as a platform to accomplish, you know, all this sort of good governance and behavior change. And I I guess what you'd call if you wanted to put one label on it, you'd call it pro-social behavior across the board, right? So, again, I have no idea how how much he means it. I have no idea, even if he means it, whether he can accomplish even 1% of it. But it's easy if you uh, put on the lens of not liking Facebook at the moment to say, oh, man, they're totally 
squandering all this money and goodwill on stupid stuff. It's easy to say that. On the other hand, you can say, well, this is a company that's figured out a new way to make a ton of money. And then if they turn around and use that money in a way to lift the pro-social tide for everybody, that could be awesome. And so my view on these things is um, I'm just I'm just generally agnostic. I, I try to be a, as agnostic as about everything as long as possible until the evidence just says, you know what, on balance, this is plainly the way to go. And so therefore, a lot of our episodes of Freakonomics Radio are, are pretty open-ended. Like, is the internet being ruined? Note, note we didn't say the internet is being ruined. Right. Um, and you could say, you know, if I were, if I want. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To be my critic at the moment, I'd say, well, that's a very cowardly way to say it. Just tell us. Is it being ruined? And, you know, first of all... I kind of feel it's not my place. I don't know. Second of all, the future is unknowable. And third third place, I like the questions that um, – I like to ask questions that don't plainly have an answer because, you know, it's like solving – it's like working on problems that are hard problems. If they were easy problems, they would have evaporated already. If the question still exists, it means it needs more thinking on it. And so um, so I'm indecisive not, – not indecisive. I – I try, but very often we don't reach some conclusion. You know, we did an episode recently about sugar. Um, there are people who really think that sugar should essentially be banned and that it's so potentially damaging. And there are people who think that, what are you talking about? Ban, forget about banning. Don't even regulate it. Don't tax it. Don't touch it. It's sugar. People should be able to put it in your mouth. Are they both right? They probably can't both be right. Is the best way to go somewhere in the middle? Probably. But how do you, you know, what is the evidence um, that it's potentially not good for us? Um, what is the downside of removing it? Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like every episode is meant to be a thought experiment. And uh, with the Internet, this episode, I think it was more than most because it's something that almost everybody feels strongly about. Yeah, and I mean, there's some great examples in there I mean, about just the overall complicatedness of some of these questions, right? I think that one of your interviewees in the episode talked about, you know, how they were seeing uh, lots of social media around Ferguson right. uh, on Twitter, and then they would go to Facebook, and it was like all Ice Bucket Challenge, and, you know, not and the Ice Bucket Challenge being a really great cause and raising money for really important things, um, but that there is some... There are decisions being made, whether they're by computers or people, and these things are, are fairly complicated. And it's not it's not like we can just come out and say, like, that was wrong and this was right. Yeah, and that I would put in the naive 
a heap as well for people who, I mean, eh, maybe that's not fair, but, um, you know, it's like, man, that's not quite fair. But I'll give you, for instance, when, when the Snowden, when the Edward Snowden revelation, when the first when the first revelation came out and it was that one of the big phone companies, I can't remember, AT&T or Verizon, uh, that there was a ton of metadata, right, on, on, on people's phone activity. And the primary reaction among people, my friends and, and whatnot, was outright, outright indignation. How dared that? And I just, my reaction to their indignation was, you're indignant about uh, essentially kind of a utility, you know, it's basically like the plumbing is being cataloged and analyzed and whatnot. And I can see why, you know, you might not want that so much. But on the other hand, you and all your friends are voluntarily um, publishing information about yourself, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, uh, what you buy on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. In not, in all cases, not totally public, but you're making available so much information about yourself. And that I find was just a really interesting disconnect between what people think they're doing on the internet or with the internet and what the internet owes to them. So look, this is going to, this is going to change five times between now and the next two years or, or whatever, but I feel it's not so much what the what is of how it changes, but how people can think about their relationship to whether it's the internet or just data, essentially. Like if we want to reconfigure the American healthcare system or the American justice system to use data in a kind of more, you know, holistic way to capture more, to understand the world better... It seems like the knee jerk, the first knee jerk, jerk response is always, well, "What about my personal privacy?" Um, but it seems that most people aren't that concerned about privacy in the real world setting. And in fact, the benefit that they might derive from having a larger quote invasion of privacy would be huge. And that's the kind of um, thinking that I like to talk to people about. Um, over the last, I would say, like ten or fifteen years, it seems like there's been a. Uh, if there's been more of a pop culture interest in, I'm going to call them like nerdy, brainy topics, data mm-hmm. topics, economics, the type of stuff that you guys have been covering and been writing about. You talked a little bit about some of those adjacent fields like behavioral economics and stuff like that. Do you think there's something about, we were talking about podcasts a little bit at the top before we got started. Do you think there's something about audio that lends itself to these type of topics? It seems like they're more popular hmm. than they used to be. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny. I wouldn't have thought that because, like, for instance, when we were writing our first book, Freakonomics, uh, it felt like print was the perfect medium for that because um, we tried to be really careful to, you know, like every time that you say, here's what the evidence seemed to indicate, right? Like the evidence seemed to indicate Children who live in a home with a lot of books do better at school than kids without a lot of books. So you might think, well, reading those books is the key. And therefore, what if you could just send a bunch of books to every family or require every child to spend time in the library? And then you see when you do that, that those kids don't necessarily do better. So it turns out that the books, rather than being a a direct causal mechanism of school performance – 
were more like an indicator of what kind of family the kid came from, which tended to be a high IQ family. So that's, you know, it's not shocking, I'm sure, once you hear me say that, but it's a little surprising maybe and a little bit jarring maybe. And But in order to persuade people that we think this is actually true, you want to then lay out the evidence. And print, to me, and maybe this was because I was a writer, am a writer, print just seemed like the form to do that in because you can do whatever kind of numbers you need to, whatever kind of table, whatever kind of chart, whatever kind of story, whatever. Um, and so I wouldn't, I would have never argued then at least that audio was a, a better or even parallel uh, way to persuade someone of that. So I think with Freakonomics Radio, one thing that I very, um, we're very conscious about doing is not overloading a listener with data per se. We talk about the data a lot, but it's really, I find it hard to process a whole lot of data when I'm listening as opposed to when I'm visually looking at it. Um, But one thing about the audio format that I think does, is better, um, is that because it's a, you know, it's a classic pull technology and not push. It's not the radio is on and I happen to be, you know, passing by. I'm actually inviting the show into my phone and into my ears in podcast form. There's something about the engagement of the talker and the listener where it really feels like a conversation. And so, like, you know how, um, you know, one of the reasons why overhearing a cell phone conversation is so disturbing for most people is because it seems like we basically have about the cognitive bandwidth to handle about one and a half conversations at a time. So if we're if I'm talking to you in real time and we oh, and somebody else is talking and we're overhearing their half of the conversation just in, in a real conversation, we can kind of focus on ours. But when you're cognitively trying to fill in their other half of the conversation as happens on a cell phone, all of a sudden I'm up to two conversations and that exceeds my bandwidth. And so that's that's really hard. And so there, there's something about the way that we're able to, to focus on what someone is saying to us at that moment and process it and engage with it in a way that if you're in that sweet spot, it can be it can be great. And I think what happens with a podcast, or this is what we try to achieve in, in Freakonomics Radio, is have the conversation that's happening usually between two people. So it's usually me interviewing someone or me talking about an interview with someone. And what the goal is, is for the listener to basically feel like they're essentially on the periphery of that conversation, not quite interacting with it because they can't actually ask questions, but feeling as if they're really part of the circle. And additionally, my job as the interviewer and as the narrator is to follow up with the question or the comment that that listener would probably naturally have. And so there is something about the intimacy in that audio envelope that I think is different than print and is on some dimensions better. So if that lends itself better to a processing of particularly, as you put it, nerdy or data-driven hmm. whatever stuff, yeah, maybe that is true. I don't know if it holds for nerdy stuff in particular or if that is a function of – a feature, rather, of audio generally. But that's – again, this is uh, entirely opinion and conjecture. Yeah. Look, tell me a little bit about um, – Stephen Levitt, who's your partner in the books and I think in Freakonomics in general – um, how, what's the relationship like and how do you guys work together on the podcast? Well, so <laughs> Levitt is very, um, what's the word? Generous, I guess, in, uh, in humoring me with the podcast. So he, he, like Ira Glass, thought it was a, a really stupid idea from the outset. Just 
Like, why do you want to do this thing? And like, you know, it's a, an extra different thing. And um, it just sounds stupid. Um, but he was, you know, so basically Levitt and I have a great partnership. We, um, we lead very separate lives. He's in Chicago and he's an economist. I'm in New York. I'm a writer. But it's a great working relationship. And we've, we've, we've came soon after we started working together, we, we became very close friends as well. So that continues. Um, we're still trying to figure out if, if and when our next book is. Um, but in terms of the podcast, so he kind of, you know, he 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 picks up the phone when I call him, but otherwise it's not really his thing. So he's a great guest, and so whenever uh, I want to do a, a topic, an episode that's on a topic that Levitt I know knows something about, you know, he's he's always the first guest to to line up. But it it kind of exists um, on a lot of topics outside of what his areas of expertise are. So you know, it can really. Um, Varies. It can really vary. If you're listening to Freakonomics Radio in a given year, you might hear Levitt on three out of the first five episodes uh, that you listen to. Then you might not hear him again for eight or ten episodes, and he might crop up again. So it's it's really just very, very uh, uh, topic-driven. And then whenever he's working on a project, uh, writes a new paper that's really interesting and, and worth talking about, we'll, you know, we'll kind of obviously do a paper, do, do a podcast on that because that's um, – you know, it's great. It's great to have a relationship with this guy who's so smart and insightful and weird. You know, Levitt is a wonderfully weird thinker. He really sees the world very, very differently than most people. And so in in so far as I've um, come to see the world differently, um, you know, via journalism, uh, you know, a ton of that I learned from spending these last 10, 12 years uh, with Levitt and, uh, and his economist friends. Think back a bit. I just want to ask the one question about sort of like way back when, when you first started Freakonomics, that when you first published the book. So you talked about earlier here at the top, you were uh, an editor at New York Times Magazine, which is a, you know, in the world of editorial jobs is sort of like one of the most sought after kind of jobs. And especially when you were doing it, that was really like the top of the top. So, you know, already very successful in that, in that uh, field. But, you know, you guys say I've read on your website that you put out this book and, you know, it was you, you expected I'm, I'm sure you're being a little bit, uh, you know, you're being a little bit humble, but you expected 80 people to read it or whatever. And I think that the stat is it's something like five million books were sold. And it happened, I mean, reasonably quickly. And I'm sure from your perspective, there was some sort of, a, you know, it, it built up over time. But, you know, you published the book and some short amount of time later, it was a huge success. What was... What was that like to go from, I mean, that's just, it, it's an experience that most people probably don't have. What was it like to sort of one day be putting out a book and not sure how it was going to how it was going to do and then be on the New York Times bestseller for years and years and write three more books and have this big sort of free economics empire come out of it? Yeah, it, it was amazing. I mean, uh, it, it was, it was truly life changing um, in a number of ways. I mean, financially, it was hugely you know, surprising and great because, you know, I was living as a writer in New York City with a family and basically for the previous several years and even up till then thinking about, you know, probably need to move somewhere uh, different, cheaper, et cetera. Um, I had worked at the New York Times for, I guess, four years and then at New York Magazine four years before that. But I had already quit the Times Magazine um, 
about maybe a year to no, maybe yeah, a year or two before I wrote an article about Levitt that then turned into Freakonomics. And I'd quit because even though I loved the New York Times, you know, it felt it was always really fun to call up people and say, hey, this is Stephen Dubner calling from the New York Times and I'd like to interview you about this or da-da-da. You know, that was a that was a thrill. But after a few years, I felt like um you know, I didn't really want to have a job. Um, I wanted to write. I just wanted to be a writer, and that meant uh, writing books. And so uh, when Freakonomics happened, I, I'd been uh, asked by um, my editor. So I'd left the Times Magazine, but I still wrote for them now and again. And I was working on this book about basically what most people would think of now as behavioral economics. It was what I thought of as uh, as the psychology of money. And uh, my editor and friend Hugo Lindgren, who was at the New York Times Magazine then, asked me if I wanted to write this profile of this economist at the U of C, at the University of Chicago, Steve Levitt, who just won uh, this award, this academic award. And I actually turned down the assignment a few times because Levitt's work, which I knew a little bit, didn't have anything to do with money or the psychology of money or behavioral economics at all. He did this weird stuff about kind of applied micro using databases about sumo wrestlers and real estate agents. And so anyway, I ended up finally writing the article. It led to us writing a book together. Then by the time the book came out, um, I was literally, I think, one or two days away from taking another job as an editor uh, with a magazine because, you know, I'd written a couple books. One had done pretty well, the other not so well. And this one, there was no indication that Freakonomics was going to be anything special at all. And, you know, I had a family, had to provide, and so I was ready to do that. So when the book came out um, and it started to do well, one thing that was just memorable about it was, like, we got every good break that you could get. It was so weird. It's like, you know, sometimes you're having one of those days where, like, everything is going wrong, like you just missed the train, and then you get to the office and you just missed that thing that you needed to do. And like, and for like about a year, Levitt and I would just laugh, like every single thing that could have gone right was going right with the publication of Freakonomics. We just felt like we lucked out over and over again. And then, as we learn, once something is successful, then it snowballs, then you get that advantage. And so it was an unbelievable experience. Um, and I realize it, it's, it's rare, and a lot of it was luck. I mean, a lot of my friends are writers. Most of them are smarter than I am. Most of them are better educated than I am. I might outwork a lot of them. I do work fairly hard. But, um, you know, I try never to take for granted how lucky that was. But then once we had the platform, once we had, you know, once we had the momentum, I have tried hard to keep it going. And so, look, I'm thrilled that Freakonomics Radio has become part of that momentum. That was a surprise. We weren't planning on that. Um, given the choice between a podcast and like a TV show or something, I'd, I'd opt for the podcast every time. It's a medium that is really, really close to what I've always liked, which is, you know, writing essentially. But instead of putting it on a page, you're, you're talking to people. So I'm pretty grateful. Yeah. And you, and so through all this work, you've, I mean, you've learned a lot about economics, obviously. You already were really interested before, before you did Freakonomics. You were doing some work on it then. Why do you think regular people, I mean, clearly there's, I think you guys have six or seven million people who listen to the podcast every month, right? 
Uh, depends like how you. We get about eight million downloads a month, which is not the same as number of people. I think our n- audience number is about three point three million, which technically is the number of people who, in the previous month, downloaded or listened to at least one episode. So that's the hair splitting version. Yeah, but I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of people. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in a podcast that's essentially about you know sort of economics on some level. Yeah, isn't that weird? It's, I have no explanation for that. I, I really don't. Other than You know, other than basically, even though, yes, I am interested in economics, uh, my interest is not as an economist. I'm not an economist. And so I don't think about things or explain things as an economist would. And what I'm trying to say is it's meant to be accessible. Um, And the other thing is, I mean, if if someone were to look at the list of, uh, you know, topics that we publish here, I'll read... I'll read the last several uh, podcast titles. There's a war on sugar. Is it justified? Uh, Earth 2.0. What would our economy look like if we started over? Um, Why is my life so hard? Which is about gratitude. Chuck E. Cheese's, where a kid can learn price theory. I love that one. Literally about. Okay, thanks. Um, So, you know, the topics, even though we are fundamentally sort of about economics often, it's really, um, you know, it's really a form of journalism in a in a in a little bit of a, you know, uh, sheep's clothing. Um, But the one underlying um, platform that I've tried to um, channel Levitt on as much as possible is try to pursue all these questions with as much data as possible, as opposed mm. to uh, either opinion or ideology or, you know, gut feeling. Yeah. I mean, to me, when I just to bring it back to what we started with is talking about is the Internet being ruined, which are, you know, we're exposed to the Internet in a very real way at the Webbies all the time. We have all these questions last year. We did a whole thing about how the Internet can't be stopped. That was about sort of the mm. really great parts about it. But there's a sort of like relentless you know, other part of it, but, uh, your podcasts, you know, the fact that there's 3 million people wanting to learn about these subjects to me is, is like the other, it's the corollary to the, is it being ruined? It's the other side of it, which is the, you know, there's a lot of really, really great stuff out there that's really been enabled by it. I think that's true. I also think that there's a big appetite, much bigger than, uh, a lot of people in journalism or in media acknowledge there's a big appetite for uh, it's not just optimism, but it's it's a kind of um, well, maybe it is optimism or at least resilience. But it, it, there, I think there's a big appetite, at least I see it in our audience and I feel it in myself for like saying, you know what, um, it's so easy to complain and whine and attack. I mean, that's just that's what we do as humans, right? And sure. so, um, and that's natural and that's always going to exist. And I'm not saying it's so bad. I'm just saying it's an easy thing to do. What's a little, what takes a little bit more, um, well, maybe gratitude is one, but also a little bit more perseverance and maybe a little bit more um, of a considered um, uh, way of living is to say, okay, we're, we're where we are now. Um, we can argue about how much, you know, how bad you think things are, how good you think things are. I would argue things are generally way better than many people think. And yet, um, we want to make it better. And I would argue that that's also a great feature of humankind, that even though, you know, on paper right now, the world is, I mean, this is a very unpopular view, even though I would argue it's pretty factual. The world is, on balance, a lot better off now 
than it's ever been. Um, you know, if you were born today, if you if you had to just spin the globe and pick a spot to be born on at totally totally at random, you'd I would argue you'd much rather be born anywhere in the world today than anywhere in the world 100 or 200 or 500 years ago. Um, and yet we complain and um, uh, more, I think, uh, than we might need to in part because we have a, a, a way to complain. The Internet is also a great way to complain. And and you could say, well, that's terrible. Why don't people appreciate what they have? I actually think it's a good feature of humankind that no matter how much better things are, we, we want to make it better sure. for ourselves and yeah. for other people. So, so to me, that's the process we're engaged in with Free Economics Radio is like, here's where we are now. Uh, let's look at uh, the evidence for this argument about making some things a little bit better, whether it's a nutrition thing, a political thing, an economic thing, whatever. And so that's just fun. It's just like waking up every day, trying to find a new way. It's not that we're fine. It's not like I'm coming up with the ideas. I'm trying to find people who have ideas um, to basically improve and tweak and fix the world a little bit. And that is an enterprise that I love being involved in. Stephen Dubner, congratulations on the Webby. Congratulations, more importantly, on Freakonomics. Uh, <laughs> Thank you the very Empire much. And Freakonomics Radio. It's been so great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave and Michelle. My, my pleasure. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks. Our producer is Ben Wagner. Editorial help this week from Nicole Ferraro. Show music is Straight West by Casket Club. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe and leave us a review. It turns out that iTunes loves reviews. We'd really appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.